Let's open the Word of God to John. It's Gospel, chapter 3. John's Gospel, chapter 3. I read to you beginning at verse 9. The 21 verses that Jesus spoke to Nicodemus opening this chapter are divided into three parts, but basically two. The first eight verses being about the vital phase of salvation or being born again, and the, fo- the following ones primarily about our legal salvation by the death of his son, Jesus Christ. In the middle are a few transitional verses about the ignorance of this ruler of the Jews. I'll take up with verse 9. John chapter 3 and verse 9, and let's go right after the precious words of God. Amen. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, And men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Amen Amen and amen. This is a passage of scripture that causes trouble for many. The Armenians run to this passage more than any other passage in order to bolster, they think, their false ideas of God and the salvation by Jesus Christ. We find in verse 17, where we're going to take up today, three occurrences of the vague word world. The word world occurs in the Bible, or it's Hebrew or Greek words for cosmos 287 times 59 occurrences of the word world in the gospel of john alone and they mean all sorts of different things and all sorts of shades of meaning it is our duty when we study the scriptures like this that we give the sense and we don't look for sound bites we don't care about the words for god so loved the world without a context to put them in and arrive at the right sense of those words. The sound of them is what the Arminians want you to think about them, 
that God just is so, so, so very, very, very much in love with every single person that's ever been conceived that there's no way he'd send them to hell. Well, I guess that there may be hell for a few Armenians, but he's going to save them all. He's going to offer salvation to them, and on and on it goes. We have to rightly divide the word of truth to arrive at sense. The Bible says in describing and defining expository preaching in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 8 says, So they read in the book, in the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense. They didn't look through their online version looking for sound bites. They gave the sense. In the New Testament, the counterpart to Nehemiah 8.8 is 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing. The word of truth. The word of truth needs to be divided. The word world in John 3.17, John 3.16 needs to be divided so that we understand what it's referring to and it all makes sense, fits with the rest of Scripture, and gives us one coherent, unified, systematic presentation of true doctrine. Lord, help us to that end. Let's go right after John 3.17. As we look at that 17th verse, and we see that it begins with a conjunction, let me show you that conjunctions are important as we make connections and see the flow of our Lord's words to Nicodemus arriving at verse 17. Look at verse 13. It begins with a conjunction and. And, connecting verses 12 and 13, indicate that Jesus was about to reveal heavenly things. He says in 12, If I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Now he doesn't resort in verses 13 through 21 to earthly things. He lays some heavenly things upon Nicodemus. That The and is there. And notice what verse 13 says. And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven. There's no one on earth that has gone to heaven to be able to understand heavenly things. And there's only one that has come down with that kind of knowledge. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. So the first conjunction, connecting 12 and 13, are telling us that there is no earthly understanding of these things. They come by revelation. And they come by revelation of the only one that's been to heaven and come down to us, bringing the revelation of God. Moving to verse 13 to between verse 14, showing the connection, there's another and. And connects verse 14 to verse 13, because the Son of Man, which came down from heaven, is, is going to lay some truth on Nicodemus that the Jews did not think about. And you, some of you have asked me, how in the world could the Jews miss the death of Messiah with Isaiah 53 in the Bible? Or with Psalm 22 in the Bible, because they focused on other passages. We ask ourselves, how can Arminians not believe in the doctrine of election and predestination since they're clearly taught in those words and by other similar words throughout both Testaments? God blinds men. And so they were looking for an earthly kingdom of a monarch like David. They were not looking for a savior to save them from spiritual enemies. What a loss, because they missed, he was a stumbling block. 
Do you know how many times the New Testament tells us Jesus was a stumbling block to the Jews? They stumbled over him, being a lowly carpenter's son who died a death of crucifixion at the hands of Romans. They were looking for him to raise up an army and throw off the yoke of Rome and any other enemies that they had instead of all the enemies that he did throw off. But verse 14 begins with and because this son of man that came down from heaven and verse 13 is giving us heavenly revelation and that revelation is that Messiah would die a crucifixion death. I have taught you this already. I'm just reviewing it with you by the conjunctions that connect these verses. That and that opens verse 14 is revelation from the son of man coming down from heaven that no one on earth would understand without it being revealed to them. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The Lord Jesus Christ would die, and he would die on a Roman cross at the hands of the Romans. Now we have a that at opening verse 15, telling us Messiah's goal to surely save all believers. Why was the Son, why was the Son of Man, why was Messiah going to be lifted up? for the purpose and result of believers having guaranteed eternal life, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In these two verses are several things the Jews did not understand. Number one, Jesus would die a death. They thought he would live forever. Before we get through the Gospel of John, we're going to run into Jews that refer to Old Testament prophecies, but I thought Messiah would live forever. He did live forever. After his resurrection, thou wilt not leave his soul in hell. That was in the Old Testament, Psalm 16. But they didn't grasp it all. It had to be revealed by the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost to Peter, who did a wonderful job preaching it. And then Paul, preaching it in Antioch of Pisidia in Acts chapter 13. They both explain Psalm 16 and declare it fulfilled by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross. And he died for the world. And those that have eternal life are evidenced and shown by believing on that Messiah. There's no circumcision. There's no law of Moses. It's beyond the borders of Israel. There's a lot in these two verses that were new to Nicodemus. Because Jesus had come down from heaven and was re revealing things that only the Holy Ghost knew. Right. Now 33 years, 30 years earlier, Simeon knew them by the same revelatory power of the Holy Spirit when he said that Jesus Christ was a light of the Gentiles. As I just read to you, and there are so many references like that throughout the New Testament claiming prophecies from the Old Testament. And if you've read the Old Testament, and the Jews did read it, it mentions Gentiles many times. But always under a capital city of Jerusalem and the preeminence of the nation of Israel. Because it's not fully understood yet, looking through the obscure vision of a prophet and his similitudes as to what that new nation would be like. It would be a spiritual nation, a holy nation, a spiritual kingdom. My kingdom doesn't come with observation, but all they could think was observation. We have to keep moving. There's a four opening verse 16, because that four, that conjunction connecting 16 to verse 15, indicates the divine basis for the Messiah so dying. Why did Messiah die in verse 15 so that believers could have guaranteed eternal life? Because God loved 
the elect of his world. God loved his elect and sent his son to die for those that believed on him because the only ones that believe on him are his elect. Does the Bible say that? As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Acts 13 and verse 48. And so it's based on divine love of God for his people. And we have another four at verse 17. For God did not come into this world to judge Gentiles like the Jews believed. He came into this world to save his people made up of Jews and Gentiles, which we will now explain. But if you will look at those conjunctions, they tie these verses together. Jesus is laying things on Nicodemus he's never heard, never thought about, was never taught in his seminary class because Jesus came down from heaven and is revealing heavenly things of the mind and purpose and plan of God to save his people. Identified here by their evidence, they believe on his son, Jesus Christ. And John is the one that emphasizes faith in Christ far more than the other gospel writers because that was his goal to show that eternal life is evidenced by faith. Remember 1 John 5, 13, and soon we'll move far enough on that I won't have to quote it. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. John wrote to help those that believed on the name of the Son of God to believe on the name of the Son of God. Do you know what we're accused of? Do you mean you waste your time and your energy preaching to God's people who already believe? Yes, I do. Because I want to increase your assurance of eternal life. I want you to know that you have passed from death unto life and are His because of your faith in Jesus Christ. We also seek to reach as many as we can around the whole world and to tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel. But our primary emphasis, and it was John's as well, was to encourage believers to believe more. The first coming of Jesus Christ was designed and intended for our redemption. Let's deal with the first clause of verse 17. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. God did send his son. It was a divine plan. Jesus Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world. 1 Peter 1.20 Do we ever use those words out of revelation that Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world? No. We use the words, but we apply them correctly. Jesus was not the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Those though those be the exact words of Revelation 13, 8 and 17, 8, you have been taught and you cannot forget, Jonah, you cannot forget that when it says from the foundation of the world, it is modifying the verb written. The names were written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The book of life is owned by the lamb who was slain to purchase redemption for all those in the book of life, but their names were written from the foundation of the world. Oh yes. Go compare Revelation 13, eight and 17, eight. We are not confused that Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He was slain in time, 4,000 years after the foundation of the world, but the names were written. You need to go trace a few prepositional phrases in uh, Revelation 13, 8 and 17, 8. 
Paul wrote to the Galatians that Jesus Christ in the fullness of time was sent forth by God to redeem them that were under the law. He was made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. Galatians chapter 4. So God did send His Son. He sent His Son by the everlasting covenant according to the eternal purpose that He had in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that purpose was given to us in Christ. Who hath saved us, 2 Timothy 1.9, and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Amen. So there was a purpose and a plan and the execution of it by God sending His Son into the world. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, which means you should accept it, embrace it, and believe it. Amen. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul said, it was a misconception of Jews the Messiah would come to destroy Gentiles. Why in the world do we have here, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world? Why does Jesus need to correct that notion? Where'd the notion come from? When he has just said he loved the world. Think about it. He just said in 3.16, for God so loved the world. Well, why in verse 17, do we have to read, for God sent not his son to the world to condemn the world? What is Jesus correcting by those words? Was there someone in his audience? How big was his audience? Oh, there was only one man there. Was there someone in his audience that had a misconception of what Messiah would do when he arrived on earth? Okay, just keep that in mind. Even the apostles still thought related fantasies all the way up to the day of Pentecost. Do you know that in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, the disciples pulled Jesus aside and said, are you about to restore the kingdom to Israel? You can't read that. It is not for you to know the times of the seasons. Just forget this stuff, is what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6. Because the Jews were looking for renewed Jewish preeminence over the world. Before criticizing them too much, though, if we read very many Old Testament prophecies, it sure sounds good. You, are you familiar with this one? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Right. Now, if you had grown up as a boy memorizing both verses and not just Isaiah 9, 6, but 7 as well, you'd be asking questions like the apostles did of Jesus in Acts 1 and verse 6. Right. I want you to understand it was a legitimate well, not really, but it was a sort of a, legit, a legitimate concern and idea that there would be an earthly kingdom, though Jesus did explain in this gospel that we're studying, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom does not come with observation. Art thou a king? You bet I am. And for this purpose I came into the world. Yes, he was a king. The Jews preferred race over grace. And they prefer, preferred national glorification 
to soul glorification because they already presumed soul glorification. They presumed that because their birth certificate said they descended from Abraham, they already had Abraham's bosom and the heavenly country guaranteed to them. They just wanted some kingdom on earth of Jewish preeminence because they valued things wrongly. Abraham valued them correctly. Abraham did not look for any land on this earth, which is a shock to dispensationalists and Zionists. He looked for a heavenly country and a city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham was not deceived by that little piece of sand at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. He looked far beyond that, even though God took him outside and said, look south, north, east, and west, I'll give you and your seed all of this. Abraham understood that to mean preeminently heaven. And so we do. And so in the 36-year history of this church, we have yet to send a dollar to those Zionists camped at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea in a so-called nation of Israel where they blaspheme Christ and hate the God and revelation of the Bible. And don't plan on it anytime soon. You'll have to send it on your own. God forbid. Rome bothered the Jews more than sin, death, hell, and the devil. God forbid. When you read Luke chapter 1 last night and the frequent reference to enemies that God's raised up a mighty Savior in the house of David to destroy his enemies, to keep his promises. Those weren't national. Those were spiritual. The enemies were... Do you want to hear the enemies that the Lord Jesus Christ has done away with? Death! How's that for an enemy? Hell! The devil! The grave! Sin! Praise the Lord! He's a Savior and a King and conquered all his foes. You were able to read that last evening. Nations are blessed by Abraham's seed. Nations are blessed by Abraham's seed. Now, I grew up being told that America was great because we sent F-6... Well, back then, we didn't even have Orville Wright. But back then, any foreign aid that we sent to Israel was, was brought about the blessings upon America. Now it does say in Genesis 12 and all the way to Genesis 24 that all the nations of the earth will be blessed in Abraham and his seed. What does that mean? The New Testament tells us, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8, justification realized by faith. That is what it is. You and I are justified by the evidence of the faith that we have. This is a nation of America and there are Canadians that believe, and there are those in Malaysia that believe, and there are those in the Philippines that believe, and all nations of the earth have been blessed by justification through Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham. Amen. We have a choice, and as a church, we've made that choice by God's revelation because he's taken us by the nape of the neck and showed us his word that it's spiritual blessings in Abraham, spiritual blessings in his seed. We're not looking for the national restoration of Israel. The spiritual restoration of Israel has already taken place. God has raised up the tabernacle of David. Acts chapter 15, verse 16, God's raised up the tabernacle of David by converting you and me. 
According to the Word of God, James stood up by the power of the Holy Ghost and explained that those Old Testament passages were fulfilled in the conversion of Gentiles. But the Jews missed that. What I just told you is huge. Huge. They take the blessing of the seed of Abraham and put it in America for sending F-16s to Israel. The blessing on America or the blessing on Malaysia or the blessing in Singapore is justification by faith through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we go again in this verse with the vague word world inspired by God's providence. It leads to all kinds of wild heresies when it's not loosely interpreted by its context. You just said loosely interpreted. Absolutely. You want to try to tightly interpret the word world? Send me your chart. I'll look at it for five minutes, but I don't have six to spend on it. We know that every word of God is pure, some being chosen to confound men. All kinds of examples could be raised to entertain with this very broad word, but I'm not going to do that. I've done enough of that already. I've done some of that in the past. It's not worth it. We understand the use of world here, the first one in John 3:17, to mean the earthly realm of human existence. For God sent not his son into the realm of earthly existence, the realm of human existence on earth. John had already used this sense of world in his opening preamble in verse 10 of chapter 1. He'll record this sense many more times before we get out of the Gospel of John where the word world is used for the earthly realm of human existence. Because God the Word was in heaven, and God the Word took up on human flesh and came into this world. Which What, what does he mean by come into the world? Was he geologically inside a stone? Or was he, in, was he in the earthly realm of human existence? Yes, uh, we shouldn't need any more time with that. To condemn the world. Why the correction? Who would have this notion that Messiah would come to condemn when verse 16 says he came out of love of God? What would the notion be? Nicodemus certainly had no delusion that Messiah would condemn the Jews. But the Jews certainly had the idea that Messiah would destroy the Gentiles, their enemies. Jews did not see Gentiles being saved. Let me share a few verses with you and get you excited, I hope. Do you love the great mystery of godliness? Preached unto the Gentiles. Believed on in the world. The parallelism of those two phrases there tell us where are the Gentiles in the world. Huge change. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 6, Go not but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. His apostles were sent only to the Jews. He said in Matthew 15, I am not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In Acts chapter 10, you learn that Peter had to have an extended lesson. How many times did that teacher have to repeat the lesson of Acts 10 for Peter to get it? Three times. Don't call that common or unclean that I have cleansed. Acts 10 is beautiful. You know, we usually go to Acts 10 to prove that Cornelius was born again before he met Peter by virtue of his character and conduct in the first five verses. But last night you were to read Acts 10 to see the efforts that God went through to convert Peter about the possibility of Gentiles being saved. 
And as soon as he comes into that house of Cornelius, and there's all these Italians and Gentiles standing around, he explained to Cornelius, you know I shouldn't be here. You know this is against the laws of our nation. But God's told me that I shouldn't call you common or unclean anymore, you goyim Gentile. That's, uh, he didn't say it quite that way, but you read it last night. You know exactly how it was said. Then we had these wonderful words of a truth. I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. Why is Peter telling us that in Acts 10? I thought he was full of the Holy Ghost in the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. Because there's progress in revelation and learning even among apostles at times. Of a truth. I now know this is true. God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation. I love the language of your word. Has God chosen out of every nation, every tribe, every kindred, every people, every tongue? But in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Is accepted. Perfect tense. An acceptance by God of that Gentile before his faith and good works. In John, it is simply a different evidence. It's not fear. I meant fear of God and his good and righteousness. It's going to be faith in Christ, the Son of God, as being the evidence of having been accepted as opposed to being condemned. Did you know that Peter got called on the carpet immediately for going to the Gentiles? Uh, look at Acts chapter 11. You read Acts 10 last night. Look at Acts chapter 11. He has to go and give the whole account. He tells all about the vision. He tells about the sheet coming down with the, un, with the unclean beasts and creeping things. He tells about the Spirit telling me, go with those men that are at your gate. Don't doubt about the matter. Just go with them. Because Peter just had to keep being pushed because he was a Jew and he wasn't going to go serve and wait on Gentiles. And guess what you are, Amanda? You're a Gentile. So am I. Thank you, Lord, for Acts 10. It's beautiful. The first pope cared about us Gentiles. I speak as a fool. Peter was never a pope anywhere. Where, did Pete, where was Peter's last whereabouts according to the Bible? At the church and city of Babylon. In Mesopotamia. Look at, look at this. Acts chapter 11. This, Peter has to spend the first 17 verses giving the explanation for why he would go and preach to Gentiles. But look at verse 18. The audience that heard him, when they heard these things, they held their peace. They stopped accusing Peter and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. God has given the gift of repentance to the Gentiles to prove that they have eternal life. Remember the order. Peter said, the fear of God and working righteousness is the evidence of being accepted. It's not the condition of being accepted. But these, Gentile, these Jews understood, wow, there's been a change. God is granting wholesale repentance to large groups of Gentiles. 
You say, well, that, sh that should have put an end to it. It didn't. Because then if you come over to Acts chapter 15, Peter has to explain himself again at the Council of Jerusalem. Acts chapter 15, verse 10. Peter is explaining what happened with Cornelius, beginning at verse 7. And when there had been much disputing, see, they're still arguing about this matter. What are we going to do about these Gentiles that are claiming to believe on our Messiah? What are we going to do? Peter rose up. So Peter rose up, told them, remember, God chose me to be the first one to preach to a large group of pure Gentiles out of Italy. And God, which knoweth the hearts, verse 8, bear them witness. What did he know about their hearts? That their hearts were regenerate, pure hearts of God's elect. He gave them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. The gift of the Holy Ghost is God and Jesus Christ giving the Holy Spirit to the church, which he did on Pentecost and which he did to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, referred to in Acts chapter 15. It is no other gift and it's not the Holy Ghost giving anything. It's God giving the gift of the Holy Ghost, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God? To put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. That is, why are we going to require things of the Gentiles that we couldn't keep? Right. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Amen. It does not say we believe that they shall be saved even as we. It says we shall be saved even as they. Amen. And it's by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Notice, notice the conversion of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ to a full understanding that God was raising up Gentiles and converting them, and that he had sent his son to save them as well, and it was their belief on him that was the evidence of their eternal life. James stands up in verse 13. Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Verse 14, Peter's told us about the household of Cornelius. Verse 15, Amos chapter 9 told us this was going to happen. Verse 16, after this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called. There's a bunch of Gentiles on whom the name of Almighty God is called. We are part of the family of God by God adopting us into his family. Saith the Lord, who doeth all these things, known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Can I, I don't know how to make I don't know how to get any better than that. These are the words of the living God to us. Old Testament, New Testament, confirmation. You know what the dispensationalists say? Dispensationalists say that Acts 15, 16 is the most important verse in the whole Bible for dispensationalism. That is Zionism. That's the future preeminence of Israel. Acts 15, 16, I kid you not, they say that's the most important verse. We just took their most important verse and took it away from their use of it and applied it to the conversion of Gentiles, making up the real tabernacle of David because David's son is reigning on the throne of that tabernacle, that kingdom. It's the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the kingdom of the God of heaven. Right. And here we are. A little outpost of it all the way over here in the Piedmont of the Carolinas, of the United States of America, of the Western Hemisphere of the North America. Right. Thank you, blessed God. Amen.
Look at chapter 22. Oh, I'm getting distracted by God's word. It's a painful thing in the pulpit to be distracted by God's word. Now, I can promise you I've been distracted before I got here. But listen to this. Acts 22. Paul has been led into a castle in Acts 21 by a chief captain who saved his life from the Jews who were going to pull him in pieces because they found him in the temple. And there's a, little, there's a little conversation that takes place in the last five verses of chapter 21 where the chief captain asks if he can speak Greek and uh, Paul is able to answer and tell him that he's a citizen of Rome. And uh, he gives him license to stand on the, the steps of this palace and preach a little sermon to the Jews. And he does it in the Hebrew tongue. It's, it tells us that at the end of 21. When you read your Bibles, listen, there's no drama coming out of Hollywood that can match this kind of stuff. Amen. All that's made up junk by dope-smoking, hallucinating idiots. This is tr these are true events of the right. most important matter that can ever be discussed among men. Right. Paul stood on the steps and in the Hebrew tongue preached a sermon. And I promise you that uh, down through about verse 12 or so, they were greatly entertained and listening to all about this famous Jew from among them that had been very well trained and was highly educated and had a great resume. They were listening to him, but here's what happens. He keeps developing his sermon. He gets to a point where he uses a word that they don't like. And they throw dust in the air and tear off their clothes and want to rip him in pieces again. And I give you that word. Verse 20. And when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by and consenting unto his death and kept the raiment of them that slew him. This is Paul recounting in Hebrew to the Jews of his conversion. And he said unto me, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, said unto me, Depart out of Damascus, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. And they gave him audience unto this word. And then lifted up their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. And they cried out and cast off their clothes and threw dust into the air. That is a mad mob for one word. Guess what word it is? Who you are and who I am. Gentiles. Now do you understand? Yes. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. There was a serious misunderstanding. Jesus was telling Nicodemus, how are you going to understand heavenly things since you can't understand earthly things? There's only one that's been to heaven and come down with heavenly revelation, and I'm about to lay some of that on you. Messiah is going to die a crucifixion death with the Romans for the, for the sake of the world that God loved. And... The evidence of eternal life is belief on his son, Jesus Christ, not circumcision, the law of Moses, or anything that is strictly Jewish or Israelite. Jesus did not need to correct an idea of condemnation of elect viewed as elect. If John 3.16 simply is the world of his elect, that's too vague. There wouldn't have been the need for verse 17 
For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. Why would he even have to correct the notion of condemning the elect that God loved if that's all that's involved? There's something else attached to the elect. It's the elect out of every nation. It's the elect of Jews and Gentiles. And the Gentile part is what had to be corrected before Jesus could move on. A slight distinction had already been introduced by John, verses 10 and 11 of chapter 1. Luke and Paul used world for Gentiles. In Luke 12, 30, Romans 11, 12, 1 Timothy 3, 16 that you read last evening. The reprobate world was already condemned, as the next verse plainly tells us. They were condemned already. So there is some group that Jesus has introduced vaguely here by the use of this word world that he needs to correct that he did not come into this world to condemn them, but to save them. Jesus did not condemn directly at his first coming. Let's move. Let's look at these words. Verse 17 of John chapter 3. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. Jesus didn't condemn directly at his first coming, though he did indirectly. He says very clearly here, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. This world is made up of his elect of Jews and Gentiles out of every nation. But Jesus didn't come to condemn first trip, first coming. But Jesus does condemn in di at different times and at different comings. He came in judgment on the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and it was to condemn and to destroy them. He is coming again the second time in flaming fire with his mighty angels to obliterate, to destroy with everlasting punishment from the presence of the Lord all those who do not believe and obey his gospel. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Jesus will come in judgment, but not the first time. But there was, an, there was an indirect secondary condemnation, and that is how men responded to Jesus. While his mission, while his purpose was to die the Roman death of crucifixion to save his elect and guarantee their eternal life, yet by how men responded to him, it condemned them by the evidence of whether they were gods or not. Just to point out to you, as you read through these verses, understand that there's two senses of being condemned. There is a real condemnation of going to hell. Jesus didn't come the first time to do that. He is coming again to do that. But by the way you responded to Jesus Christ, you gave the evidence of being condemned or not. So that, Paul would say, in Acts chapter 13, when Paul preached to the Jews and they blasphemed, he said, ye have judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. And if you don't have everlasting life, then you're going to be condemned in the primary sense of the word and the literal sense of the word in the great day of judgment. You know, Jesus was, was so merciful in his first visit. Remember when a village of the Samaritans didn't get excited about him visiting them? And James and John said, Lord... I feel an Elijah moment. Can we call fire down from heaven and burn up this village of Samaritans? And Jesus said, Ye know not what spirit ye are of. The Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Did he come 40 years later to destroy men's lives? John the Baptist said of the Lord Jesus Christ, He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And that fire wasn't the cloven tongues of fire on the heads at Pentecost. That fire was the raging fire that burned Jerusalem. But that the world through him might be saved. 
This must be an elect world of some distinction, for he came to save only the elect. We know that from the rest of the Bible. And so we have to rightly divide the word of truth and give a sense to the the word world here. It's got to be his elect. I don't need to run verses to tell you that because you know that. You know, there's a doc. Where would you go on our website if you needed to show someone that Jesus died only for the elect? What's the doctrine called by the Calvinists? It's the L of Tulip. Limited atonement. If you type in limited atonement in a search box on our website, will you get a little document? No. You'll get a big one. Nine pages of proofs that Jesus died only for the elect. Remember that closet Calvinist in the, my father's church that I grew up in when I was a, a late teenager took me to his house. I do not understand anything about it, especially me reading what he gave me, but he gave me the death of death and the death of Christ by John Owen, who's one of the greatest theologians to come out of England, and he was the chaplain for Oliver Cromwell. He wrote a book called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ that exhausts every possible argument that Jesus died only for the elect. It's a wonderful book. It's difficult to read. It was difficult to read then. But I thank God for it. And I hope that you understand enough about this that we don't need to repeat those things. I went and looked again at the Baptist Confessions of 1644, seven congregations in London. The Baptist Confession of 1689, 100 congregations around London. The Philadelphia Confession of Baptists of 1742. In our country, when it comes to the death of Christ, there isn't any question, there isn't any vagueness. Jesus only died for the elect, and he absolutely and certainly saved every single one of them. Christ's purpose in coming was the actual salvation of the world of his people. The use of might in this verse. The past tense of may, the use of might is not maybe, possibly. Do you know that when you use, well, I might, you know, are you going to go to the game tonight? Well, I might and I might not. Well, that's just so vague. Nobody knows what you're doing. But when this word might is used in the, in the Gospel of John, it's not like that at all. When it says in John 3, 17, in the second clause, but that the world through him might be saved, it is absolute certainty of their salvation. Right. How many examples do you want me to give? Look at John 9 and verse 36. As we look at just a couple of examples of the word might used by this Gospel writer. John 9, 36 He answered, this is the blind man that was blind from his birth. Verse 36, he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may be possibly believe on him? No, that I might believe on him. Just show him to me and I will believe, is what that word means. You know, when you talk about, well, I might and I might not, we're dealing with something totally differently than how it's used here. And there's example after example. Look at chapter 10 and verse 17. Therefore doth my father love me, because I lay down my life, that I may be possibly take it up again. Oh, I love the word of God. Brethren, what am I doing right now? Other than having fun. I'm comparing spiritual things with spiritual. 1 Corinthians 2.13. We're comparing the Spirit's use of words. We don't care what dictionaries say. The Bible is a spiritual book. We use dictionaries seldom because they have little use. The real use is how does the Spirit use words. And he tells us, remember, a dictionary is only recording history. It's only recording what everybody already knows. 
That's where a dictionary comes from. Dictionaries don't determine the meaning of words. Dictionaries record the historical meaning of words that other people have already made those words mean by their use of those words. The common people determine the meanings of words that are written down by scholars on a historical basis. A dictionary is always out of date by definition. But the Holy Spirit gave us the revelation of things that I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man, because the Spirit knows the deep things of God, and he reveals them to us by his words. And so we compare spiritual things with spiritual, and those things are words. In First Corinthians, I want to prove it to you, because I can't quote the whole verse right now. First Corinthians 2.13, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. We want to see how the Holy Spirit uses words. Back to John 3. You know, if this word world includes Gentiles, everything is beautiful. So, therefore we give senses to the uses of world in John 3.17 to make it understandable. Because we're supposed to apply a sense to it that fits scripture, fits context, and makes it understandable. I'm supposed to read in the book of, in the law of God distinctly and give the sense. I'm supposed to rightly divide, and so here I'm about to show you how we can do it. Would Jesus correct a notion of condemning elect from the loved elect of 316? I don't think so. There is a group he does not need to condemn, for they are such already. Verse 18 is going to tell us they're condemned already. Belief in Christ is the overriding theme of verse 15, 16, 17, and 18. It's got to be included. Notice verse 15 says what's in 16, except the love of God. It is clear that the use of world in the New Testament, especially by John, is vague. Let me remind you of a little phrase I've used before, and I use it very carefully. This is inspired ambiguity. Do you understand that? Ambiguity is when a word is not expressly plain. Inspired means God put that word there for that purpose of it not being expressly plain so that men would make an error with that word. Is that true of the word water in John 3, 5? Did God know when he wrote John 3, 5 that that word water would be picked up by 95% of Christians and applied to baptism? Did God know that by his omniscient power of seeing everything before it comes to pass? Did he go ahead and leave the word water there? Did he go ahead and leave the word world in John 3.16 once and three times in John 3.17? Yes. Did he go ahead and leave 1 Corinthians 15.29 the way that it is? Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? Is that inspired ambiguity? Yes. Do you know what we have to do when we go to that verse? We have to stick in different ellipses to make it make sense. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the hope of the dead? Else what shall they do which are baptized for the resurrection of the dead? Else what shall they do? Else why are they baptized for the dead that have died in the Lord? We can put all these different constructions on it because we know what the verse is not teaching and we know what the verse is teaching, but you cannot draw what the verse is actually teaching from the words that are there. You have to put a sense on it. Are you with me? Just like we had to do with the word water. 
We had to take away amniotic fluid. We had to take away baptismal water. We had to go through quite a bit of work. Therefore, look at verse 17. I'll read it to you a couple different ways. Just like I would 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Just like I would John 3, 5. Just like we have other verses in the Bible where we have to put a sense upon the words. John 3, 17. For God sent not his Son into the realm of human existence to condemn the world of reprobates, but that the world of the elect through him might be saved. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. He didn't come to condemn the reprobates because the reprobates were already condemned, as verse 18 is going to tell us. Can we get better than that? For God sent not his Son into the realm of human existence to condemn the world considered at large, but that the world considered at large might be saved. This is what some men before us have done, and I've added a few to them. I'm just going to go through a list, and I'm going to tell you what my favorite is and what makes perfectly good gospel sense to me. Looking at John 3.17, For God sent not his Son into the realm of human existence to condemn the Gentile world, but that the Gentile elect in the world might be saved through him. Are we getting closer? For God sent not his Son into the realm of human existence to condemn all the unbelievers in the world, but to guarantee the salvation of all the believers in the world. For God sent not his Son to the realm of human existence to condemn unbelievers among the Jews and Gentiles, but that believers among the Jews and Gentiles might be saved through him. That's my favorite. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Does that fit context? Does that fit the Jewish perspective? Does that fit Nicodemus? Does that fit the rest of the Bible? Does that fit election? Does that fit limited atonement? Yes. You say, why would God leave a word in the Bible that causes us to do so much work? So that men can hang themselves with false doctrine. Amen. And that we have to study to show ourselves approved unto God. There's one God and there's one pastor of your church. And a wife that only knows a little smidgen of the grief and prayers to rightly divide the word of truth. I do not believe that we need to be so simplistic and forceful on the passage to just jam the word elect in there. There's more at stake than just the word elect. There's believers. There's Gentiles. So, for God sent not his Son into the realm of human existence to condemn unbelievers among the Jews and Gentiles, but that the believers among Jews and Gentiles might be saved through him. Because that's what we have coming right up. They're already condemned in the next verse. There's John 3.17. We come back from our break. We'll cover verses 18 through 21 because we are going to read about the condemnation that's already in place upon men that it, you, you can give the evidence that you're not condemned by believing on the name of the Son of God or by not believing on the name of that Son of God and rejecting him, you can show that you're already condemned by Adam and by your own sins and on your way to hell. And what is the condemnation? Jesus Christ is light. And Jesus Christ came into this world, and his holiness exposes the sins of men. And men don't want to come to him because their deeds are evil. They don't want to be reproved. They hate the light. Right. But there are others 
who have been changed, whose deeds are truth, and they want to be there and have their deeds exposed that they are wrought in God because they will and do of his good pleasure by God having worked it in them. We'll do that for a few minutes when we come back after the break. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word, and may he by his Holy Spirit and by these words on your printed page of the King James Bible comfort your heart that we understand these things and that a great change took place that Jesus introduced to Nicodemus that he loved believers in the world. He loved elect Gentiles, not just the Jews. May the Lord bless his word. Amen.